Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Pubs, Pints, People, the official podcast by the Campaign for Real Ale. Regular listeners hopefully might recognise me. I'm Claire Phillips. I've been here for the last couple of series when we're all operating under the constraints of lockdown mainly. But this is a brand new season. We've got some big changes and the first of which is that there are some... I was going to say old and new voices, but I'll actually say familiar and perhaps less familiar voices to add to the mix. Hi, guys. Hello. How very Hello. political. <laughs> yes, well, you might recognise there the voice of Katie Wiles, who was a stalwart of the show in the early days, and Paul Grant, who's a relative newcomer. So perhaps you better introduce yourselves. My name's Katie, and I was on the programme for the first two seasons and then went off to have some babies, and Claire stepped in for me. I'm actually supposed to be producing in the background however one of our hosts today has covid so i'm back on the air again i'm paul i'm newer to the camera organization at least internally i've worked in a lot of edinburgh's sort of most well-known beer bars um, the guilford arms the bow bar stockbridge tap cloisters i also worked for a little brewery in the countryside as well for a little while and now i live in fife working away with the fife group as well well, welcome to the podcast. And uh, to keep listeners on your toes, you'll be hearing other volunteer hosts across the season to make sure that we get a, a wide range of voices, opinions and ideas and different parts of the country reflected as well here. But I'm afraid you're stuck with me throughout, although I hope that's good news. We can't have Pubs, Pints, People without you, Claire. We're actually going on tour. Pubs, Pints, People will be travelling around the country to link up with local camera branches and discover exactly what the beer, cider, pub and club scene is like in the local areas and we're also raising a glass to some of the fantastic beer festivals currently kicking off again across the country and isn't that just the best news ever i'm just so excited to be going back to beer festivals i had the chance to visit the chapel winter beer festival last month and that's uh, in essex and i, I did a, a little recording for our next episode and it's just so nice to, to get back to the beer festival season. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the summer. I am as well. We've actually just announced that GBBF is happening, which is fantastic news because that's been on hold for two years. So I'm really looking forward to getting back down to Olympia, London, and we'll actually hopefully be recording there. So that will be really, really fun. 
And to celebrate the return of camera festivals, we're in Newcastle-upon-Tyne today, which is actually one of my favourite parts of the country. Any particular favourites from there? I've not really visited the city itself so much. I've got a vague memory of um, meeting up with some student friends, and and that's probably why it's a vague memory, because they were student friends, enough said. Um, But I I love Northumberland um, and the the wider branch area covered by the branch that we're talking about today. And I've been to some fantastic pubs, sort of more northumberland north um in in northumberland and, and up towards the scottish border i literally went once to newcastle and it was like a sunday morning at 7 a.m or something really early i was just wandering around and it looked like a party had happened the night before so i think <laughs> it must be a really good fun city to go up to for sure yeah so we're actually celebrating the newcastle beer festival it opens its doors today that's wednesday the 6th of april runs until saturday the 9th and we'll have the opportunity to sit down with the festival organizer anthony mcmullen we'll be talking to him about what to expect and and how such an amazing event is is actually put on, particularly after having two years off because of COVID. Anthony will be joined by Martin Ellis, who's a regular contributor to Beer Magazine and kind of an expert on the pubs and brewery scene in the Usborne area of Newcastle. And so he'll be telling us about what makes the Northeast such a special region for beer lovers and pub goers. And for those not able to make the journey to Newcastle, don't fear, because I'm sitting down with beer writer Adrian Tierney-Jones. We're talking about his new book, The United Kingdom of Beer. And he recommends 250 of the very best beers found in bottles and cans across the UK, which is, you know, that's not a job that I'd be turning down anytime soon. (laughs) I think he has to probably go through every single one of those 250 beers to make an accurate recommendation, which sounds pretty good to me. We'll be looking at what's in a bottle in this episode, because something that has been under discussion at camera for quite a while is how to categorise beer. And we've been using the term real ale since it was coined by camera back in the 1970s and there was so much of the bad stuff around there mass produced in factories using pasteurisation artificial carbonating and extending the shelf life so if you were lucky to find anything more traditional usually in a cask it was easy to identify it as real ale but there was next to nothing left in the way of bottle conditioned beers with live yeast in the bottle they all died out the big producers just weren't interested back then And by comparison, we're living in beer heaven these days now with lots of bottle-conditioned ales, but also containers such as cans, cellar tanks, key kegs, amongst many other sort of forms of dispense. Camera has been updating how they talk about these beers to fit this wider category these days. Essentially, any beer that supports the principle of secondary fermentation is now good to go. Exactly. We have this new definition. Instead of talking about real ale specifically, we're talking about live beer. And just to kind of open it up, rather than just putting casks straight into a bottle, the other types of ways that you can serve bottled and canned beer, and that actually does have that secondary fermentation process. And we actually have Tim Webb, who is a celebrated and widely renowned beer author and camera volunteer, who's going to just give us a little clip about what camera's new definition of live beer means. Camera needed to change the definition of real ale because people thought it just meant cask ale and we're using the two terms interchangeably. In turn, that meant that if you had a bottle-conditioned beer or can-conditioned beer, people were thinking that was just cask ale in a bottle or a can, which it's not. We settled on the term live beer because it conjures up the thing that is common to all the different formats of real ale, which is that when the beer goes into its final container, it's got enough live yeast in it to make a real difference to the flavour and character of the beer. That's great to hear from Tim. Is there a similar definition for cider? 
Camera promotes natural cider and perry that is not derived from concentrate, and we also encourage live ciders such as those that are keg-conditioned, bottle-conditioned, and bottle-fermented. We can hear directly from another expert in the orchard, Alison Tafts, who is a regular contributor and future co-host on the show. Camera now defines real cider and perry as being fermented from the whole juice of freshly pressed apples or pears, without the use of concentrated or chaptalized juices. So the word concentrates refers to using concentrated apple juice when making cider. Some cider makers choose to turn their freshly pressed apple juice into a concentrated, very high sugar apple syrup, and they do that by boiling it and evaporating all the water content off. This means that they end up with the apple syrup that can be stored in very much less space, and this will keep for very long periods. Some producers simply buy in apple juice concentrate from an external source, which can be hundreds of miles away from where they're making cider. Water is added back to this concentrated juice, in many cases along with sugar and glucose syrup, and that then is fermented into cider. Chaptalization, this is where sugar is added to the apple juice before fermentation in order to enrich the juice and this helps to achieve a higher level of potential alcohol. It gives more sugar for the yeast to eat. Now if you ask can you taste if a cider has been chaptalized, well it doesn't leave a lot of sweetness in the finished cider necessarily because the yeast will eat that and convert the sugar to alcohol. But some people think that chaptalizing cider leads to a lack of balance and complexity in the finished cider. When you're adding sugar, you're diluting the cider, basically. So for every kilo of sugar you add, you'll get an extra cider that hasn't got any real apple flavour or character at all. It is a cheaper way of stretching your fruit juice, but adding sugar often flattens out distinctive flavours in drinks. So you end up with a less interesting and less characterable final product. So coming back to the definition, camera recognises real cider and perry is made from whole juice of fresh pressed apples or pears. So this means that the juice is fermented after harvesting and pressing, in a similar way that you do with wine from the grape harvest, through the winter and the spring, with the yeast working on the juice, and no help from added sugars or ingredients. That's all really interesting, isn't it? And marks quite big changes here at Camera, doesn't it? For those who aren't aware, Camera has actually completely relaunched its Camera Says This is a Real Ale in a Bottle accreditation scheme. So you might see the stickers in bottle shops and in supermarkets. And it's basically now be called One to Try as a tagline. Instead of the tagline, Camera Says This is Real Ale... Camera says this is live beer and the aim is to include any beer style that uses bottle conditioning and just point consumers in the direction of good quality brews to try really. This new accreditation scheme has actually made it easier for breweries to take part as well. Previously breweries had to pay to send their beers off for testing in a lab to be accredited. Camera is now just asking that brewers fill in a few quick questions about how their beer is made and they can get all the materials for free. Camera wants as many brewers as possible to participate in the Want to Try scheme and share the good news about the fantastic beers that they're making for the casual beer drinker. So if you are a brewer and you've not signed up, visit camera.org.uk slash OTT, um, which is short for Want to Try, and you'll get all these free resources um, and brilliant stuff that can help you promote your beer to beer drinkers. And if you find yourself a live beer through the One to Try scheme, don't forget that it must contain live brewer's yeast to ferment right up until the moment that it's drunk. This fermentation creates a small amount of sediment, so make sure you don't shake your bottle or can up before you pour it. It's always best to leave the dregs behind and let the beer settle, in my opinion. 
Well, I've certainly heard of beer tastings where part of the experience is trying the beer essentially bright and then trying the sediment separately, then mixing the two to see the difference in taste. I've actually done that once or twice uh, recently, (laughs) and it is actually quite interesting to see what the sediment and that yeast has on the flavour profile when you kind of separate them out. But um, I would say that the final shot of trying it with the sediment is a bit much for me. (laughs) I'd leave it it to where it settles and agree with Paul on that one. There's a section about live beer and the one to try campaign on the camera website. We'll put the details in the show notes. This seems to be a really positive move in my book, bridging the gap between real and craft ale, both of which can represent excellence in beer. So here to tell us more about excellence in beer is Adrian Tierney-Jones, who sat down with Paul to chat about his new book, United Kingdom of Beer. And Paul, over to you. Adrian, you have a new book out, The United Kingdom of Beer. Can you tell us what it is about? Yes, of course. Thank you. It's basically my 250 of my favourite British beers in bottle and can. Other people might say, well, where's so-and-so? Where's this, that and the other? But this is my choice. And what I've tried to do with each beer is try and get the brewers to tell me the story of the beer. Instead of just saying, well, this has so many blah, blah hops in it and it it weighs in uh, so-and-so. And I've asked the brewer, what was the motivation behind this beer? And sometimes, you know, you get some great stories. You know, sometimes brewers will say, well, I had this funny old dream. And I thought, hmm, this might make a good beer. Or, you know, I went to see a film or I saw a piece of art. When I first started writing about beer 25 years ago, you know, why did you make this beer? You'd ask someone, a brewer, and they'd say, well, marketing said we didn't have a beer in a 4.6 amber coloured range. And it's like, right, okay, not much of a story there. But now brewers are, for want of a better word, craft brewers. They have a whole hinterland behind them. You know, they're not, they're scientists, but they're also artists. I mean, that's the thing about brewing, isn't it? It is an art and a science. Why the focus on bottles and cans? Well, during the pandemic, we all drank at home when the pubs were closed, which I think there were figures out this week that showed a lot more breweries are producing packaged beers. So my focus is on, you know, these are the only two vessels you have beers sold in. I mean, you could get those big nine pint kegs or something. But yeah, I just focus on bottles and cans because A, they're easily available as well. They're portable. And you can, you know, the, the whole idea of the book is that these are beers you can have in so many different circumstances. You could drink them at home. You can drink them on the beach. You can take them up the mountain if you so wish. I mean, I do remember a friend of mine years ago because we used to go walking and climbing in Welsh mountains a lot where I grew up. And I remember once we got to the top of one of the Snowdonian mountains and my mate goes, right, some snow over there, lads, let's put these cans in. And so we, we were having our lunch with um, pretty cold cans of Newcastle Brown. So, you know, you can take these beers anywhere with you. I'm a great advocate of drinking in the pub as well. But as the pandemic has shown us, there are such a good variety of beers out there now made by British brewers. You said you started writing about beer 25 years ago. How do you think the production of beers for small pack cans and bottles has changed in that time? I know that cans traditionally up until very recently had a fairly poor rep. It was the Americans as ever, American craft brewers who came up with what we would now call craft cans. And I wrote stories about it about 10 years ago. And I worked with a canning company when they had a canned beer competition about six years ago. But I go back to something like about 2010, 2011, and I was at a beer dinner at the White Horse in Parsons Green in London, and there were some American brewers there. And someone handed me a can of Dale's 1050 Imperial Stout, and I was used to, say, having a pale ale in a can, but having an Imperial Stout in a can, that was such a game changer. You realise that you can have anything. 
another pivotal event was when Beavertown took out their bottling line and put in a dedicated canning line. And I think a lot of brewers would have looked at that and thought, oh, hold on, there's something going on here. Um, because, you know, everyone was bottling and some brewers do a mixture of bottling and cans. But yeah, the quality of cans has leapt in the last six, seven years. I can't remember the technology behind it. There are machines that means, you know, when the beer is going in the can, it makes sure all oxygen's excluded. And so there's no faults going through. They're very portable. One of the things I've often thought about with the sort of merits of bottles and cans, you know, like quite a few beer writers and beer fans, I do have a few beers aging under the stairs. They're all bottles. They're mainly um, lambics and um, sour beers and imperial stouts, but they're all in bottle. It's funny, when I have a can, which, you know, I think, oh, I should age this, I almost like psychologically think, no, I should drink it now, even if it's like 12%. And that's usually a mistake at one o'clock on a <laughs> Sunday morning. And, um, and, and going back 25 years, yeah, I never used to drink from cans. And I do remember about 2004, maybe, or 2005, I was secretary of the British Guild of Beer Writers then. And we have our annual awards and dinners every year, every December. And we were in the state of planning it at the time. And the committee, and Muggins here mainly, used to organise the beers to go with the food and everything. And, you know, we do a tasting, get a couple of members of the committee, go and see the chef. And we decided to put Mackerson Milk Stout on the um, table with, I think it was with the dessert. And I remember our then chairman was very like, oh, we can't put a can on the table. It would look terrible. He didn't really speak like that, but, you know, you can understand. <laughs> so, you know, you think back now at the Guild dinners, they're putting the cans on the table without any thought, any, any you know, at the time thinking about it. It's like you ain't putting Tenant's Super on the table or um, Carlsberg Special Brew. But, yeah, there has been that change. But as I say, there's one thing that I feel, and I'm willing to be proved wrong, that I just feel psychologically when I want to age a beer, it's more likely a bottle that will last rather than a can. I think we're nearly at 2,000 breweries now in brewing operations. Mm. How would you go around choosing the best 250? What does that sort cool. of... Well, I have my own favourites. You know, breweries mm. like um, The Colonel, Burning Sky, Stannery over here in Tavistock Utopian. There are breweries that I really love. And, you know, they're not all bright and shiny craft breweries which are making, you know, bright and colourful cans. You know, I've got a beer from Adnams. I've got a beer from Hook Norton. Um, I've got Old Peculiar from Theakston's and I've got a beer from Black Sheep. They are what you'd call traditional beers. How do I go about choosing them? Sometimes there was serendipity. Because I write a column for the Daily Star Beer of the Week, which today is actually a Belgian beer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I get sent beers. I say to people, look, I can't promise I'll write about them because I'm not going to be one of these, send me a beer and I'll write about it, guns for hire sort of thing. And so you try new beers and you think, oh, gosh, where have you been? I was like one beer that's in it, Chapter Brewery. It's uh, West Coast IPA. I actually tried that on cask, I think it was, in my hometown of Llandidno, in a lovely um, craft beer bar called Taps. And I thought, this is wonderful. Bought a can of it, or a bottle of it, and um, it was in. Because, you know, uh, it was just really good beer. And it's the same, I got a can of a beer from Twisted Wheel, I think it was. Another, again, in the same, same bar. Um, so it's a mixture of things. And favourites, new discoveries, you know, colleagues, friends of mine say, oh, you must try this beer. Uh, or I sometimes try beer in the pub and then go and get hold of it packaged. So it was, it's a mixture of things. There's no, um, <laughs> no random reason to anything I do, to be honest. But uh, yeah, 
yeah i think that's what that's how i chose it i mean it's just a variety of ways of doing it and of course this episode is focused on newcastle in the northeast specifically mm. any particular favorites from up that direction brewery wise oh god yeah there's al Masti. i think they're from up there yep. and um oh, mccall's they've got a couple of beers in the book and al Masti's got one as well oh yeah of course durham durham brewery They've got that wonderful Imperial Stout, uh, Temptation, that's it. And then another one is Jakehead from Wyland Brewery, which we're lucky enough occasionally to see down here in the pub and also in Cannes. And I mean, I really love what Wyland do. I'd love to go up to see that brewery there. I think they've got some old hall or something that was built in the 20s for some exhibition. It's Art Deco or something like that. It's a it's a great place to drink beer. I haven't been up for a few years, but um, I went up about ten years ago, I think. And yeah, we went around pubs, bottle shops, um, and it's just just a really lovely part of the world. And the beer is that sort of cherry on the on the icing or the top. I can't remember what you think. Of course, bottled and canned beers allows people to drink at home and, like you say, mm. up mountains. There is a healthy balance between the two. Is it is that possible for bars and bottle shops to find and for drinkers to find as well and not have an over-reliance on one or the other? I mean, I did see some figures this week from CBA, Society of Independent Brewers, which suggested that more people were drinking at home. Basically, I like drinking at home and drinking in the pub. You know, I want my biscuit and my cake. I think the pub trade is always going to be under pressure, part, partly because of rising prices. You know, the other thing is now, If you really want to, you can have your whole life at home without going out of the front door. Don't have to go to the cinema because you can get some big telly and watch Netflix or whatever. You know, you can have your food delivered to you. You can, you know, have your beer delivered to you. You know, maybe more people want to do that. I don't. I love going out and I love taking beer with me. And I live in Exeter and in the summer, going down to the X River and just sitting there with a couple of cans is a wonderful way of spending an afternoon you know, this is what this book's about. It's all about the different moods in which these beers can be enjoyed, not just up mountains or by the sides of the river, but, you know, if you're feeling contemplative and it's a really horrible night out there, but you're nice and secure in your lovely armchair with Charles Dickens on your lap, then you can have a imperial stout, you know, something like that. Or, you know, you've got friends over, you're having a barbecue, then you have a pale ale or an <laughs> IPA or something or a, or a lagered beer. Yeah, I suppose I've drifted a bit from your question. I think... It's a difficult one, I think, on that whole idea of can they coexist? Of course they can. We want them to coexist because, you know, I want to drink at home and I want to drink out in the pub. And the book is to encourage people to try beers they won't have tried before. There might be breweries in this book that people think, oh, I've not heard of them. I want to try this. I remember when I edited a book called The Thousand One Beers, You Must Try Before You Die. There were people who would get in touch with me and say, I've done 999 and this is the one beer or two beers left to, to um, try. Um, do you know where I can get them? I said, oh, sorry, <laughs> they've stopped <laughs> making them. <laughs> you can hear the scream from Scotland. Yeah, so, yeah, I hope that sort of helps in answering your question. Mm-hmm. I think they're mutual, but the, this book is about exploration. It's about adventure. And you, if you really want to, you don't have to go out to the front door to explore. Thinking about market forces, there's challenges coming forth as well. Mm. We've seen spiral and aluminium prices yes. and minimum order quantities for printed cans, uh, mm. 
ball ball corporation in the US for a printed can went from one truckload, which I can't oh. even remember what number that was, up to five truckloads. That's a number that yeah. you know most breweries couldn't contain. You know, most breweries That's right. can barely hold a truckload of anything on site. I think the thing is, the way breweries could work on this is collaborate with each other. They collaborate in the brew house. Mm-hmm. Uh, why not, you know, several breweries in a region, for instance, get together and say, right, we need this amount, and we do, and then you make your order. My son works in a brewery, um, Orbit Brewery in South London, uh, on the operations side, and he was telling me that raw materials, you know, bottles and stuff, the prices are just going up. I got thrown out of economics, so I'm not very good on market forces. Um, I wasn't allowed to take my GCSE because my uh, headmaster said, no, Jones. Um, he said, no, you're not taking your own levels, as we used to call them. So I'm not that great on market forces, but there are challenges out there. But then if you're a, the pandemic was a challenge to breweries. And I do remember a lot of brewers grabbed that problem by the horns and dealt with it. And I remember one brewer, Andy Parker at Elusive, who've got the very wonderful uh, Oregon Trail in the book, I saw a tweet from him saying something along the lines of, I've sweated blood to build up this business. I'm not going to let it go without a fight. Mm. And now he's, you know, he's one of the most respected brewers in the UK, makes some fabulous beers. So, and there's a lot of people like that. So there are challenges out there, but then we all rise to challenges. It's challenging being a beer writer, believe it or not. Should have gone for whiskey writer because they make a lot more money than I do, but I don't like whiskey. So, um... Really interesting chat. I love how Adrian emphasizes a diversity of beer styles. I mean, how do you guys feel about trying new styles? Do you tend to like kind of stick to the tried and tested? Or have you been pleasantly surprised by going outside the box? Are there certain beer styles that you refuse to go near? I'm not massively keen on sours, I have to say, but I have (laughs) tried them. But they don't do a lot for me. I wasn't, and I'm actually getting into them now, which is strange, because for years I said exactly the same thing, and now I've been finding some really nice ones, although I just had, like, three raspberry sours in a row, and not not, not right now, not before recording yeah. <laughs> over the last few days. <laughs> That's usually your usual preparation for the podcast, is it? <laughs> yeah, now I'm kind of over raspberry sours, but it, yeah, for some reason I, I didn't like them, and now I'm into them. Well, I'll try anything once, maybe twice, just to be sure. Most recently, I've been hankering after a few balsamic stouts that I've had before um, Mm. where it's just a stout with some old balsamic vinegar added to it and it it shouldn't work on any level it shouldn't it's like adding beetroot you know something crazy like that you you almost get to the point where it should be good because it is just mad enough I was going to say when you mentioned beetroot I've I've never heard of adding beetroot to beer but I I have tried grapefruit beer and other fruit beers St Peter's Brewery based in Suffolk not too far from me they do I think that was a a grapefruit beer I didn't like it at first but I've I've tried some of their fruit beers and I'm I'm sort of coming round to the idea but I have to say that they wouldn't be my first choice so one thing you must bear in mind when it comes to drinking beer from bottles and cans and especially live beer is proper storage now beer blogger Katie Mather has some suggestions on how to store and serve beer at home on the camera learn and discover platform and uh, if you take a look there you'll find out all about storing it and, and serving it in the best ways possible that's right everything from temperature to the glass you use can affect the beer experience so I don't know if you guys have been to a bar in Belgium but if you have they each brewer has its own glass to actually go with the beer all of different shapes which I think would probably be hard to replicate at home but it's worth thinking a bit about which glass you choose for a particular beer I have a habit of drinking all of my beers from home from a big gin glass (laughs) for some (laughs) reason because it makes me feel a little bit like I don't know I just like the stem all these things go into the beer drinking experience 
I've got such a collection of beer festival glasses. There is just no more room in the cupboard for any more glasses of any shape or size for, for <laughs> beer. So I'm, I'm stuck with the, the regular pint ones. But so far this episode, we've been talking exclusively about beer, but Canberra also campaigns on the behalf of cider drinkers. Like beer, you can't always pop down to the local for a pint of great cider. So if you're going to enjoy a cider at home, you can also check out a new series on the Learn and Discover platform by Bill Bradshaw called Bringing Cider to the Table. The first two parts are currently available, with the third available later this year, and it provides helpful tips on drinking bottled or canned cider. Adrian also has done a great video for, on the Learn and Discover platform to accompany his book, which looks at beers for different occasions. So that's another one we can um, have a look at as well if you're on the camera site and looking for some nice resources to watch of an evening. Turning our attention back to our host city and UK tour, this episode we're at the great city of Newcastle, where the local camera beer festival is gearing up to open its doors today. I don't know about you guys, actually, I'm sure that I do know this, but <laughs> I am a huge fan of beer festivals and I'm so excited to have them back this year. Yeah, it's great to be back at beer festivals and Newcastle has a reputation and possibly deserved of being a bit of a party city with drinkers braving the icy Baltic winds to throng the streets. However, there are also many fantastic venues to enjoy real ale and cider throughout the city and beyond. And of course, the Good Beer Guide is a place to start and there's plenty of local news and views in the Canny Bevy, which is the Tyneside and Northumberland Camera Branch magazine. You can read it online as well. Well, let's hear it straight from the horse's mouth. Claire had a chat with Martin Ellis and Anthony McMullen, who are both from the Tyneside and Northumberland branch of Camera, where Anthony is organising the Newcastle Beer Festival opening today, and Martin is a former festival organiser. Claire begins by asking Martin about his association with the area. Over to you, Martin. I first came to Newcastle in 1980 as a student. I've lived here ever since. When I first arrived, the whole city, in fact, uh, much of the northeast, was dominated by Scottish and Newcastle. Uh, there wasn't much choice, and most of the beer in most of the pubs was keg. Now we've got a huge number of microbreweries, we've got a lot of independent pubs, and we've got various areas where there's clusters of independently run great pubs for beer drinkers. What was camera like in early days when you first moved to the city? Well, it had a lot to campaign for. The fact that we've been successful campaigning as a locally and regionally and nationally obviously gives power to our elbow to continue campaigning. Beer Festival started in the late 70s and I first went to the Beer Festival in the early 80s. We're sort of on the eve of the 2022 Beer Festival. Very welcome, I imagine, after the last couple of years that, that we've had. And, and let's have a chat with, um, with Anthony at this point, Anthony McMullen, who's the festival organiser. It must be a, a really exciting time for you to, to see the festival coming back. It's an exciting time because the 44th Newcastle Beer and Cider Festival has, I say, probably been three years in the making. It's just getting cancelled four weeks before uh, we're due to open and uh, lockdown hitting. Everything was sort of all prepared. Pretty sure the other half's going to be really happy that the 3,000 beer glasses that have been in the garage for the last couple of years are finally going to get moved. <laughs> yes, I mean, nobody knew what was going to happen, of course, two years ago. But to, to get to this day, did you ever think, you know, are we ever going to see that day? It's been touch and go of not knowing when, you know, will we get the go ahead? Will it be this year? Will it be next? So it's really good to see that way. We've managed to get everything put through, turn around a beer festival, probably half the timescale we normally get from approval to showtime, as it were. 
What are the highlights going to be this year, Anthony? Well, this year we've got over 100 beers, uh, cask ales. We've got about 50 ciders uh, that's going to be there. We've got two nights of entertainment. One of the big things for us is uh, on Thursday we have our hat day where St Oswald's uh, local charity uh, have collected all of their obscure and interesting hats from all of their retail stores and they have a charity stand at the festival where they sell them and everyone dons on a hat that uh, is either crazy, interesting, shows their personality off a bit and then also enjoys the festival uh, fun. So we always enjoy uh, hat day. On Saturday we have Listed Molly at 2 o'clock essentially closing the festival with a nice uh, set of music. And do you have a special focus on beers from the region? So we made a guarantee that every single brewer in Tyneside, Northumberland, we've got like 40 of those, there would be a place in the bar for at least one of their beers. And they could either do a local showcase, so something that's either new, interesting or has a heritage angle to it. So we've got quite a few uh, breweries celebrating anniversaries this year. So there's quite a lot of interesting ones where someone's brewed a beer they haven't brewed in 30 years. It's a bit of a celebration of uh, their journey as a brewer. We've also got a malt showcase as well so that we have a battle of the beers. So the brewers can compete against each other and they really like their comradeliness. But no, the brewers were emailing us, ringing us, going... We want our battle. <laughs> What's the battle going to be? So we've got quite a lot of entries in the battle of the beers. Martin, I guess if we go back to the days when you first got involved, it would have been your dream to have 40 local breweries involved, wouldn't it? I remember 40 years ago when we had Big Lamp, who were celebrating their 40th anniversary this year, had a beer at the beer festival and everybody in Newcastle who went to pubs that served decent beer were talking about the novelty uh, and how, how how incredibly special it was to have a new brewery in Newcastle and the beer was going to be at the beer festival and, and, and there was excitement about it. It was uh, difficult to understand nowadays when, when we have new breweries opening all the time but it was it was really a, a big talking point, people saying, have you heard there's a, a new brewery opening? Looking around the city in various areas, I'm going to talk about one particular area which I think you know well, Martin, and I, I know this will probably upset people but I believe The Guardian called it Newcastle were to have a Shoreditch, this place would be it and I suspect that probably didn't go down too well, did it? Oh, I think people were delighted that we were recognised in The Guardian and um, talk about the Usburn. It's an old industrial area back in the 18th, 19th century. Very much was a, a heavily uh, polluted, grimy industrial area. And 13, 40 years ago, there was a fair amount of vacant properties. It was in some ways dilapidated, which actually had a charm to it, if you ask me. But it provided opportunity for... The low-cost buildings provided opportunity for people within the arts and creative industries to move in. It's now attracting uh, national and global attention. And quite a few microbreweries there, a good half dozen, I believe? Well, at the moment we've got five, we'll shortly have six. They're all very individual, they've got their own characteristics, they they range from um, one-person brewery to others which are bigger but still not too big. I imagine that when you've got an area like that, if people are visiting the city, perhaps they're coming up a few days, stay or whatever, specifically to go to the beer festival, areas like this must just be sort of a, an extra add-on to the beer festival almost, you know, reason for, for camera members to, to make a couple of days holiday off it. Absolutely, and it makes it a wonderful destination to come along to the festival and there's little pockets there, such as the Usburn, where they can just spend another day or two exploring the pubs, the breweries, and it makes for a wonderful little getaway. 
I know it's probably always difficult to ask this question, but um, if you have a, a favourite pub in, in Oosburn, which ones would you go for? I'm always a big fan of the, the, the free trade. It's a w- wonderful pub. You've got a wonderful view of the, uh, the River Tyne, the Tyne Bridge in the background there. It's, it's got its own little quirks, its own personality, and has some really interesting range of uh, beers in there. You, you, you really can't, you can't beat it. The Cumberland has been a focal point for traditional uh, folk music on Tyneside for decades. I remember going there in the 80s and there, there's folk music sessions taking place on a number of nights of the week and that, that, that continues on. And then there's the, the Clooney, which has got an international reputation as a music venue. Uh, the, 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 and I've seen some incredible bands there. The music's great. It's, it's a music venue come bar. It's got a great selection of beer and cider very different to the to the Cumberland in many ways, but similar in other ways because it's it, it has a, a, a strong uh, live music element. How do you see the future of of the, of the general area, not just Oosburn, but but the, the the wider area around the city? One of my concerns, and it's a concern which doesn't just relate to the Oosburn or Newcastle, Tyneside, or or the northeast, is beer has gone up phenomenally in price. So I think there's a number of people who will find it very expensive to go to the pub as much as they used to. The price of a of beer now means it's you know you get dip into a pub and have two three pints. You notice what you you spent a few years ago. You know you spent some money, but it it wasn't a significant spend. With with people asking for up to five pounds and over five pounds for a pint. I think there's a lot of people who will hesitate for nipping in for two or three pints. And I think that's a big worry. I think that's, that, that's my biggest anxiety because that threatens the livelihood of pubs and the livelihood of, of breweries. Beer festivals are good value. People go along, they have a good time, they meet people, meet old friends, as well as drinking great beer. So that was a really interesting discussion. I have to say, I'm really wanting to get myself up to Newcastle now. We talked about Canny Bevy, the local magazine, and I noticed that uh, a few issues ago, I think probably before lockdown, actually, I I read in a a back edition that he set a quiz all about brown ales, um, because it's not just about Newcastle brown ale that you might think, but but lots of others too, and... uh, I didn't do terribly well on the quiz, I have to say. But it's right, the answers were at the bottom of the page, so it didn't matter. Uh, Speaking of volunteers, another new feature on the podcast this season is that we'd like to profile cameras, dare I say, army of volunteers, many of whom go above and beyond the call of duty and actually have become volunteer heroes in their own right. And this week, we'd like to raise a glass to Paul Ainsworth, another Paul. Uh, Paul won Camera's Campaign of the Year Award and has worked tirelessly to support local communities to save their local pub and navigate the choppy waters of planning protection. He's set up Camera's Pub Saving Award to shine a spotlight on community groups that go above and beyond to save their local and put together a wealth of resources for volunteers. Paul? We salute you. Cheers. Cheers, Paul. And on that note, if anyone is afraid that their pub is going to go under or might need some help, um, you know, for the local community, resources on what to do to save it, make sure to visit the camera website. We've got loads of campaigning resources available um, that can help you as a campaigner or as a community group save your pub from closure.
So regular listeners know that we usually go through our we're only here for the beer slot and pick out our favorite pubs or pubs that we'd love to visit around the country. And we're going to do something a little bit different because Martin is the expert on this and he's given us some brilliant recommendations already. So I'm going to hand over to Claire to give us a couple of recommendations from the Good Beer Guide to really give you a complete overview of where you need to go in Newcastle. Yeah, I mean, Martin was such an expert on, um, particularly in the Usburn area, but just dipping into the to the guide. And I know he said that you can't have a, a favourite pub in the same way as you can't have a favourite child. So I'm going to mention three um, that are in the Good Beer Guide. The, the Clooney on Lime Street, um, a large industrial building converted into a, a pub, art gallery and live music venue. The Cumberland Arms on James Place Street, um, which also has six changing beers as well and uh, has won multiple camera awards. Awards. And of course, uh, another one that we talked about in the interview, the Free Trade Inn on St Lawrence Road. Again, seven changing beers in this unique pub. Um, I think any of those, well, we've got one each there, guys, haven't we? One each for our <laughs> only here for the beer this week. I'll claim the Free Trade Inn because it is one of my favourite pubs in Newcastle, like straight up. That is one of my favourite views of the city. And before we come to the end of the episode, we, of course, talk about our last orders. Now, I don't know whether you've been drinking anything from the region that we've been talking about. So for last orders, I have a totally not Newcastle, Anspatch and Hobday from London. I met with the brewers last week um, at an event and they very kindly gave me a few cans to take home. And I've got their pale ale in front of me, which is very delicious. A lot more bitter, actually, than I thought it would be. But really, really quite nice. And it's got um, people playing cricket on the front of it, which is really quite nice artwork. So thank you, Inspatch and Hobday, for this lovely drink. I've moved on to the Lanyards IPA by Broccoli Brewery also of London as well. This was sourced for me by a friend. They brewed it for the Hold Steady's big weekender events. I couldn't make the shows, unfortunately, but somebody was like, do you want the, do you want the beer? Yeah, sure, of course, yes. Um, so I have a couple of cans of that. Lovely American IPA, you know, classic sea hops all across the board. So yeah, I'm going to be drinking this till we close out the show. Well, I'm not actually drinking this. I haven't drunk this for a little while, but I'm going to talk about a beer that uh, I discovered when I was visiting the north of England, the northeast. Uh, It's from a brewery called Twice Brewed, and the beer is called Knox Cherry Milk Stout. It's a 5% stout. Uh, I I drank it in a pub up there. I believe you can get it in bottles, although, sadly, looking at Twice Brewed's um, website at the moment, bottles are out of stock, but uh, let's hope they, they bring it back, because this is just... Just an unbelievable stout. It's one of the nicest stouts I've ever had. Um, I mean, it's making my mouth water just thinking about <laughs> cherry yeah, stout. It, milk it, stout. it is. Awesome. Uh, I, I took a, a picture when I was in in a pub. It's a, a black stout brewed with Morello cherries and there's some sweetness there. It is, it is just really, really lovely. So before we sign off, I want to remind our listeners that the show will now be monthly, which will allow us to work closely with branches as part of the podcast tour. So our next episode will be on Wednesday, May the 4th, and we'll be taking talking all about the link between railways and beer. So the episode is going to be hosted by Claire and Paul, along with volunteer Simon Webster, and we will be heading to the North Cotswolds to talk in with our Ale and Steam Festival later on that month. We'd also like to take a moment to thank all the volunteers who have helped to put this show together. Mark Lovett for putting together the script, 
Paul Hadfield, John Ram, Simon Clark and David King for their edits. And make sure to stay up to date on all the latest in between episodes by following us on Twitter at Pubs Pints People. We'll be putting up a poll on beer ticking ahead of the next episode to tie in with the train ticking theme. And we'll be looking for your nominations for a volunteer hero to feature in a future episode. Absolutely. And until next time, cheers, everyone. Cheers. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How does a free case of beer sound? Yes, you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at Beer 52 by going to www.beer52.com forward slash people. That's the numbers 52 in the 52 and covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95. And what's more, as a special offer for our listeners, they'll throw in two extra beers for free. So that's 10 unique craft beers. Beer 52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month, they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, and this month it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent. So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Derges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia... Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others. And if dark beer's not your thing, you can choose the light-only case. Also included is the ever-insightful Ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time. So head over to www.beer52, that's the numbers 5 and 2, dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of 10 beers now.